Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, we are in 2 Samuel 19. We are coming to the home stretch here. Not too many more of these. If you notice, the sections get longer and longer the closer I get to the end. (laughs) So we're going to be looking at um, a text here that, that... it's going to be a little bit more difficult to unpack than some others. And, and the reason for that uh, is because um, we're used to typology. We're used to saying, okay, you know, Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Moses. Um, but if, if Jesus is what the Old Testament is all about, then his body is also what the Old Testament is all about. And his body is the church. Uh, And I've talked a lot uh, in the last 12 months or so about what the church is, what it isn't. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look um, at at what the church is. This is a sermon about the church, the bride. And when that happens, what we end up doing is mixing metaphors, right? We're used to Jesus uh, being the king, Jesus being the son of God. But in Hebrews, he refers to the children that the Lord has given him. And I always think, well, wait a minute. I thought he was... How is he one of the children, but he's given children, and we're the children, but we're also his bride. And then I'm like, wait, what is going on? And this happens. So today, I, wanna, I just want to suggest this idea that if the church is the bride of Christ, she's a bride, therefore she is also a mother. Okay? And so what, what is, who is the mother of Israel? If our father is the, the, the living God, who is our mother? So before we go any further, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your um, being here with us, calling us out of the world. Uh, We know that uh, it was, the the ground was covered in snow, and there could have been a lot of danger. Uh, There could have been even having to cancel church, Lord, but you made a way for us to come here. You um, provide us with heat and light and, and resources, Lord, to gather together as your people, to sit comfortably and to listen to your word, to listen to your word preached and proclaimed, to sing to you, to pray to you, to declare our creed. And this is a a great and glorious gift that you've given us, and we thank you for it now. And we pray that as we sit here and we listen to your word, that we would come to see that beautiful bride of Christ, um, of whom we are members, that, that beautiful mother. And may we, Lord, in her presence, learn to sit up straighter and to use our table manners. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, Trinitarian churches uh, often talk about God the Father. I find it's one of the things that, uh, in my ministry, we've tried to recover, that Jesus is, in fact, the, the focal point of the, God, of the Trinity. But there are members, other members of the Trinity, the Father being one of them, and, and, of course, that forgotten God, as we like to call him, the Spirit. You know, we're used to talking about this. It's, it's Jesus the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But few Christians realize that this necessitates that we have also a spiritual mother, right? We're, we're, not, we're not raised in a one-parent home. Uh, for, me, for me, Christians, I think the idea of a one-parent home, that the church is a one-parent home, is, makes a lot of sense. It's easy to think about because many of us have experiences with one-parent homes. I think we, we, we look at the body of, of believers, the household of God, and we, we read into it our natural conditions in the world. And, and we live in a, in a culture where single-parent homes are widespread, but the church has never been, nor ever will it be, a single-parent home. Now, John Calvin, citing a church father, said that says this of God the Father, to those to whom he is a father, the church must also be a mother. 
Mother Church. In Protestant circles, to differentiate between the Catholic doctrine of Mother Church, uh, we, we always like to use better words, so we call it Mother Kirk. Uh, that's the Scottish word for church. So we talk a lot about Mother Kirk. One of Doug Wilson's uh, best books, it's the one that I give people who are interested in coming in the CRC, is called Mother Kirk, because he's trying to reclaim, the CRC is trying to reclaim this concept of Mother Kirk. We have a mother. Now, th- this whole concept is derived by good and necessary consequence from several verses, and I'm just going to read these, and what we're going to start to do is put together a picture. The new Jerusalem is called the bride, the lamb's wife, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. In Hebrews chapter 12, the church is called the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 2 says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. So the bride of Christ is a city. But Galatians then comes along in in chapter 4, verse 26, and says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So this bride, who is the new Jerusalem, is in fact your mother and my mother. That's why we're siblings. It's not just through God the Father. The Christian church is called the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the mother of all living. And if you recall... What did Adam name his wife? At first, her name was Isha, and then he gave her a new name, uh, and he named her Eve when she became the mother of all living, right? So the, the wife of the first Adam is the mother of the living. The wife of the second Adam is likewise the mother of the living, for you are alive. You are not dead. You are alive. And if you are living, then your mother is the bride of Christ. Okay, see, this is, I'm going to keep doing this over and over and over again. Just these little syllogisms that help us grasp this concept. Pastor Douglas Wilson explains it this way. Put it all together, we see that our mother is a holy city, a lovely bride. This Jerusalem above is plainly identified as the mother of us all. The people of God have always had a mother. This lovely woman was Abraham's mother. So when we talk about identifying with the true and ancient church, We are not talking about an abstraction, but rather about her, our glorious Mother Kirk. Now, if we understand conceptually that everyone who has ever lived, who believes in Yahweh, who who is going to be in heaven, who's going to be there with us, is the church universal, the church triumphant, the church on the last day consists of all believers, that, that means Abraham also had the same mother that we do. Right? Notice that it never refers to who her mother to who his mother is. And, and actually, if you think about it this way, you go back, there's a lot of great men in the Bible who they leave that part out. And, and the reason they leave it out is because they have a mother and, the, her, and their mother is the church. Okay? It's like a little, it's an argument by what is missing. We ought to show deference to Mother Kirk because we are commanded in the fifth commandment to honor our mother and father. Now, lots of um, Protestants are used to hearing sermons about honoring the civil government and honoring the church fathers because we're supposed to honor our father and mother. It's the same argument for Mother Kirk. We are, we are to honor her. We are to show her the deference due her. And, and this means that we're not little, right? This helps us in understanding our own Christian walk because how many Christians out there running around do not honor their mother? They don't show her respect. They don't care what came before. What matters is me and my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, if you, can, if you consider the household of God as having a father who we are to honor, okay, honor God the Father. Easy. <laughs> Everyone's like, yes, uh, amen. Then I say, okay, well, you must also honor 
Mother Kirk. You must show her the deference due her as your mother. And that suddenly now we're like, well, that's just a spiritual reality, right? We want to spiritualize those things that we don't want to obey, physically obey. So what does it mean then? I, you guys get to go home and talk about this because this isn't what the sermon is about. But how, what does it mean for your house to honor your mother, Kirk? What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, the bride of Christ is the nurturing mother of all believers. She appears in type and shadow typologically throughout the Old Testament, just as Jesus does. We need to learn to recognize her. We need to learn to recognize this beautiful woman to whom we all owe our lives. Okay? And, and, and we do. And if we don't think of the church as a mother who, to whom we owe our lives, then we, we clearly have a problem, a giant theological practical issue within our Christian life. Within the books of Samuel already, we have seen Mother Kirk show up typologically. Hannah was found in the court of Yahweh in her husband's house, praying, devoting her, uh, the fruit of her womb to the Lord, providing a son of promise because she was not simply worried about her own household, but the whole concept in 1 Samuel is that she is worried about the household of God. The household of God has Eli and his sons in charge, and so she's there in the tabernacle praying that she herself would receive a son that then she would devote to the Lord so that he would have a son. She's worried about the heritage of her husband, the, the Lord Yahweh. Okay, again, I'm going to keep doing this. Right? That is all there. Okay? It's not something, I said Jesus, where I've just read too many Peter Lightheart books and drank too much Guinness, and now I'm sitting around making this stuff up. Right? This is how we've always understood this. When a woman like Hannah shows up doing the things that she is doing, she represents Mother Kirk. Abigail who came on her knees before David, the anointed of the Lord, using her words of wisdom and life to defend her household from the wrath of God, is likewise Mother Kirk. Because here I am, a representative of the church, ordained, representing this beautiful woman, appealing to you through words of life and wisdom so that the wrath of God would be turned away. And so every Sunday when a preacher preaches, he's like Abigail. That is what he's doing. That is what a ch the church is doing when we declare the word, when we declare mercy, when we declare the gospel. Now, Hannah and Abigail were Lady Wisdom personified. They were both historic women. What I'm doing with this typology is now I'm not erasing history. Abigail existed. Hannah existed. They were real women. But just like David really was real, but a type of Christ, so Hannah and Abigail, who lived and truly lived, are a type of Mother Kirk. Now, the portion before us today is a typological story about the church and about marriage. This whole chapter uh, is using the metaphor of marriage to explain to us what's going on in Israel because things are looking really, really bad. Okay? And if you're, if you're keeping score at this point, you're wondering, what, what is, how is this going to work itself out? Like, what's the hope? Where's the hope in the story at this point? David is a total schlub, and, and, he's, and his sidekick is Joab. And so when you got David in the driver's seat, well, hold on, let me rephrase that. When you got Joab in the driver's seat and the schlub David riding shotgun, things are not looking good. Okay? But mom has the keys. 
Okay, so they're not going anywhere. That's, that's the point of this whole story. Mom has taken the car keys, and the two boys who are be- misbehaving are not going to get too far. David, the true son of God, has fallen because of his own sin. He's despised the word of God. He's despised God himself. He's abdicated and disobeyed. He's left his garden to be ravished by snakes. And, and I, know, <laughs> I know that we're always waiting right, for the Messiah to come and crush the heads of snakes. But what we're going to see is that if Christ is a head-stopping savior, his bride is fit for, for being a helpmate for him and his task, she also is a head-stopping savior. Right? Dad's, right? When, when dad's at work and there's a snake in the backyard, I, I have a, adult sons, but when they were very little, it would be my wife who would go out there and stomp on its head. Right? When I'm not present, who is it that I... Right? If, if, if you guys uh, think about this metaphorically, I just took my wife to the range recently, and I'm telling you now, please do not break and enter into my house when I am not there. Right? I have a helpmate fit <laughs> for the tasks that I'm doing in this life, and one of them is protecting these six children. And, and we forget this, right? We, we are, our culture is horrible when it comes to the theology of women, right? What, right? what is their proper use? What are they for? Why did... Why did Adam receive Eve? Why does Jesus, of all people, need a bride? Unless there's something we fundamentally misunderstand about the role of Lady Wisdom and Mother Kirk and women generally. Okay? In the absence of her husband, the wife goes out in the backyard and stomps on the head, on the head of the snake. That's what the story is about. Now, enough leading. Let us now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. And I'm going to start in verse 41, and we're going to just take this in parts, and we're going to start to look at what this has to say about marriage and about Mother Kirk. Now, verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have you eaten at all, at all at the king's expense? Or has it, he given us any gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, but the men of Judah followed the king steadfastly, and the Jordan, uh, steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. I'm sorry. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Sorry about my stumbling there. Sometimes I, I doodle so much in my own Bible, I can't even read it on Sundays. <laughs> I've got to dial back on the colored pens. Now, what happens is if we read the Bibles in iso- or Bible chapters in isolation from one another, we lose important threads. This is why last week I wanted to go so hard on how David has failed and has set up this rebellion. Okay? There has been a fight going on between the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah since Saul was king and he first accused David. And so 
Benjamin and, and uh, Judah are getting all the press. Everything's about those two warring tribes. And the other ten tribes are, are now saying, what about us? What about us? Right? They, are, they are concerned that they are being left out. And, and this conflict, the conflict between Benjamin and Judah has alienated the other ten tribes. Ten tribes don't just rebel suddenly out of the blue. They have an actual redress of grievances that are legitimate. And notice, they come to the king and say, King, why is this happening? And if you look at the verses, 41 through the end of chapter 19, the king says nothing. Isn't his job to stand between two parties who are at odds with one another and make a judgment between the two? And yet he will not hear the case of the Israelites. And this is exactly what I was talking about last week. The accusation that he only cares about Judah, that he shows them preferential treatment, is proven now. The fact that the other ten tribes are standing before him, and he does not care about their grievances. Instead, what he does is he lets his homies stand around him and shout them down. They have been left out. They are, they, they are the ones who are being mistreated. It says despised. And, and the king has nothing to say on their behalf. The king has nothing to offer them. He merely lets Judah shout them down, and send them off. So what happens? What happens? Well, a worthless man enters the scene. Worthless men are always ready to step in in a, in a, in a power vacuum. Right? In the absence of good men, what will bad men do? Take the reins. Okay? And so a worthless man, a son of Belial, that's what worthless means. And this, this concept has been there in Samuel throughout. It's been a little while but sons of Belial are worthless sons. They are sons of Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, Belial there, he's using that, the name of a no-god, a, a, a pagan god, in the, in the place of Satan. And so that, that's who Belial is. He, he's a pagan god that Paul equates with Satan. And so you go, so this is how scripture works. Okay, well, wait a minute. I've heard this word Belial before. So then you will go all the way back to the book of Samuel. And you think, oh, these guys are called the sons of Belial. Oh, they're sons of Satan. They're worthless sons of Satan. Belial was often used in, contexts, in, in context to stress Satan's activities against God and his household. And that's what, we have, that's what we've seen them doing all the way through First and Second Samuel. They are opposed to the sons of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, we read that the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial, that's a double entendre, right? They're the sons of, um, the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. What they're, they're equating there is Eli and Belial, right? We're finding out it's an entire worthless household. Uh, Nabal was referred to as a, as a son of Belial. In the very beginning, Hannah's argument, when uh, Eli comes to her and says, why are you drunk in the, in the tabernacle? She says, I'm not a worthless woman. I'm not a Belial woman. Okay? So this household conflict has been there since the very beginning. Now, why? Why, is that, why are they bringing that up now? Well, households is the point. There are two warring households. And this isn't just a story within First and Second Samuel. This is the story of the Bible. Genesis 3.15, the antithesis, they call it. That's the theological name for it, the antithesis. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So the story of redemptive history, the story of humanity, is one between two warring families. And we see now in Samuel that these two families have been at war, and now at this point, this is a household reference. They're talking about households in this chapter. 
David has failed, and so the sons of Satan are like, well, we will lead, right? We'll, t- we'll take up the mantle. We'll take up the trumpet. We'll, we'll, we'll hear their grievances, and this is what worthless men always do. In chapter 20, a worthless son of Satan is trying to steal away the bride of David, just as Satan stole the bride of Adam. Satan comes to Eve and steals away the affections and, and asserts an authority over Eve that he does not have and steals away the bride of Adam and, and through her steals away the bride of God. Because if the people of God are always bride of God, Adam and Eve there in the garden are the bride of God. Satan came into the garden and stole her. Now what we have is the son of Satan doing like his father. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit more because that seems like an odd idea, doesn't it? Where, where, where does it go to the verse where it says there's a wife, there's a husband. That's, this is how scripture works. God doesn't always want it to be as simple as do not steal. <laughs> do not steal is pretty straightforward. You read do not steal and you think, okay, you know what I'm not going to do? Steal. But when you come to a chapter like this, there is so much more going on and you have to read very carefully and you have to go into other places in scripture and read there and then come back and start to untangle this, what's going on. Now, what, what he, he does now, this worthless son, is he blows a trumpet. And even here, the words he are chosen very carefully. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Well, the son of Jesse, well, that is, in fact, what? David's grandfather. And he is the son of whom? Ruth. <gasps> okay, now, we're, now they're referencing the book of Ruth. And what was the book of Ruth about? The book of Ruth was about Naomi who loses her husband and loses her son and is disinherited in Israel. She's a widow. So he's essentially saying that, that the ten tribes no longer have a share in Jesse and they have been widowed. They no longer are a member of the... They have no inheritance here now. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to lead them. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible explains it. Legally, a widow was ignored for purposes of inheritance. Think about it. Naomi, with, with, she comes back to Bethlehem with nothing but a widowed uh, Moabite daughter-in-law. And why isn't everybody's like, oh, your husband's house is still over there. Go, go back to your own house and go back to your... It's all the land and everything that they owned is still there. But she is a widow now. And in, in Israel, widows have no inheritance. Widows are legally no, non-entities. This is why God the Father is constantly telling us to remember them, take care of them, provide for them. Because legally within the system... They are nobodies. And, and, and what Sheba is saying is that the ten tribes of Israel are now widows. You've widowed them, David. Now, this is why I, I call Israel here the bride of David. Because this concept that Jesus, the king, his bride is the church, didn't just pop, pop into the apostles' minds. The apostles weren't just like, you know what? Jesus is kind of like the husband of the people of God. This, was a, this is a concept deeply rooted uh, in the Old Testament. Yahweh refers to Israel as his bride, Ezekiel chapter 16. Later on, uh, when Israel has rebelled, they get a writ of divorce. God actually divorces Israel at one point because he, he's had enough of her whoring. And, and so this concept that God is the bride of his people is there. But it's also true that the king, the Lord's representative, is the husband of the people of Israel. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Behold, this is the people of Israel speaking to the king. We are your bone and flesh. 
We are your bone and flesh, which is what Adam said to Eve when she was created. This is, they're making a covenant, David and the people of God, and, and it sounds like the covenant that Adam makes with Eve. Why? Because David is saying, I'm now your husband. I'm your protector. I'm your provider. I'm the one who's leading you. I'm the anointed of the Lord. I'm standing in the place of Yahweh. And what I will do are, are all those things that a faithful husband is supposed to do for the people of God. And now Sheba comes along, and he takes his opportunity to say, actually, you've widowed them. They no longer have any part with you. This is why Absalom slept with David's concubines, because, because this whole concept of taking the kingdom and taking his brides are connected. Uh, young men trying to steal their father's authority uh, by sleeping with uh, their, his wives goes back all the way to Genesis. This is what Ham did to Noah. I, people are confused about that. What, what does it mean that Ham uncovered the nakedness of Noah? It's actually a reference to him sleeping with one of his wives. He's trying to take Noah's authority. This is what Reuben did against Jacob. It's what Saul's uh, son Ishbosheth accused Abner of. Remember, he said, Oh, you slept with my father's concubines. You're trying to steal the kingdom. Absalom comes and he sleeps with David's concubines because what he's doing is he's stealing Israel. So you have in, in this section the ten concubines, ten, and ten tribes. Ten tribes. And, and, and what the authors are saying is these two are connected. The ten tribes represents the ten uh, concubines and vice versa. But that's not all. <laughs> now I'm going to show you how I can use Hebrew tools on Logos. Because the, it, it, there's even more marriage stuff going on here that, I, I, that was quite hard to dig out of the ground. Now, the ten tribes accused Judah of stealing David away from them, which is exactly the words that Leah uses against Rachel in Genesis. She accuses Rachel of taking away their husband Jacob from her. David is showing preferential treatment to one tribe over another, just as Jacob had showed preferential treatment to Rachel, which is something that the law of God forbids. God's very clear. If you're going to go through that headache of having more than one wife, you have to treat them all equally. It's right there in the law of God. You can't have, pre- you can't have favorites. And so Jacob wasn't doing that, and now David isn't doing that. And it's in reference to the people of God. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 2, it says that the men of Israel withdrew from David, while Judah followed their king steadfastly. And this is, I could just, the guys who translated the ESV, please. The word, it's one Hebrew word that they translate into follow their king steadfastly. But the word in Hebrew is cleave. So Judah cleaves to the king, while all the rest of the tribes run away. And I, this was quite by accident. I was just scrolling over it, and I accidentally clicked on one of the words, and I was like, that's only one Hebrew word. What's that? And it turns out that, right, this is what Adam said, that a man is to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And so one of the wives, Rachel here, Judah, is cleaving to David, while the other ten tribes, the, other, the rest of David's bride, has said, no, we have no inheritance with him. We are widowed. And that is what's going on here. Now, to just tie a bow on this whole thing, David finally goes home. He goes to his ten concubines. And just in case we missed it up to this point, the authors are like, you know what? I really want to make sure everyone understands what I'm saying. So he takes his ten concubines and he puts them in a house under guard. And it says that they lived as if in widowhood. Wink, 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 wink. Right? The, the tribes are disinherited because they're widows, and now the concubines are like widows. 
Uh, and this is often what happens. When wives are mistreated in the way that Absalom mistreated these uh, ladies, the husband doesn't, he, he's done with them as, as far as conjugal rights. Uh, he, do, he doesn't go do that anymore with them. And so now they're living like widows. So this whole section is about how David's own wives and the tribes of Israel are widowed. What happens when David runs around with Bathsheba? What's the result of all of that? What, and then he doubles down by murdering someone. He's violating the commandments. He's hanging around with guys like Job. What happens to men like that? They lose their wives. We know that this is true. We know in our own lives, this is what happened to men. They go their own way, and what they do is they lose their wives. And, so, and, and this part is depressing. We all ought to feel massively depressed at this point. We're like, David, you can't protect your own household. You can't protect Israel. You can't hold on to this woman that God has given you, this inheritance that he's given you. And then what happens? Well, then we carry on the story, and it gets worse, right? And it's almost like we're watching CNN. <laughs> it's like I'm on Drudge Report, and I'm like, I'm not going any farther than that first row of, I can't handle it. You know, it, when you scroll down, it's just like, it just gets darker and darker. I read Drudge. Right? And I'm, sometimes I can't even get past the little paragraph at the top where all the titles are red. They're all red. There's ten red ones. And I'm like, I'm just going to turn off my computer and go outside. When I'm, this, this is like watching the nightly news in the United States. Right? Can it get any worse? Right? It wasn't enough that we had balloons floating around from China. Now we've got some unidentified objects. We got a train wreck in the Midwest, and the president doesn't go there. No, he goes and sees his buddy Zelensky because he had to pick up his son's check. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. I just imagine a giant dryer where Zelensky's just like cleaning the money. Anyway, anyway. Okay. go Ukraine. Um, <laughs> the corruption, it's so bad. And so we have all these things on, and you're just like, oh, now World War III is starting. Right? And what's next? Anybody had World War III on their bingo for 2023? And that's what's going on here. Does anybody have Job steals the throne right, in your bingo card for, for 2 Samuel? Well, what, I'm going I'm to do two parts together, the end of the chapter and this next section, because they go together. Joab commits a coup here, and it's more successful than all the failed coups. Right? All the other coups have failed. But Joab is going to steal the throne. So I, I'm in 2 Samuel, now chapter 20, and I'm going to start at verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that he had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm then Absalom, take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at, um, at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and a sheath fastened to his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And jo- Oh, look at that. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, 
And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and the king, let him follow Joab. And Amasa was wallowing in his own blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, and he carried Amasa out to the highway into the field and threw a garment over him, when he was taken out of the highway, and all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now I'm going to jump to verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was the recorder, and Sheba was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jerorite, was also David's priest. Whew, a lot of names. You're welcome. You're welcome for how well I said those, Laura. <laughs> now, Joab takes the throne. Okay? He, he just steals it. And he steals it through what looks like obedience. He steals it through what looks like loyalty. Sheba's rebellion was never as dangerous as Absalom's. Never. It, 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 on paper, it's not. The most dangerous person is Joab. David replaced Joab with Amasa, remember? He took the, the failed general of his son Absalom and put him in charge of the army. And we immediately see that this is a bad idea because David says to him, hey, meet me at a certain time. And Amasa doesn't show up. You're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's what you want in a general is not showing up on time. So then what, what happens is he says, okay, well, Abishai, you go. And then Abishai leads out now David's personal bodyguard. That's who these soldiers are. These two tribes that they reference are actually David's personal guard. And um, what, what, it, what it actually says in chapter 27 is that they're Joab's men. Well, wait a minute. How did the personal bodyguard of the king become Joab's men? See, and this is what's subtle. The chapter is full of subtlety. It doesn't say that Joab stole the throne. What they are suddenly doing now are attributing things to him that ought to be attributed to David. These are David's men. And he says, take, take the king's men. That's what David says to him. But then two verses later, he says, oh, these are Joab's men. Well, then Amasa actually catches up to them at the city of Gibeon. Um, now, to defeat Sheba, right, the rebel, Joab needs to control the army, which is impossible if Amasa is in his way. But Joab's an old hand. He understands how this works. He's already killed a rival. He's already killed, uh, helped David kill a rival with um, Bathsheba's husband, and so he knows how to handle rivals. You murder them, right? right? This David's been training him in this kind of thing for decades. When someone stands in your way, you kill them. Now, it's kind of funny in the Hebrew. What actually happens is he walks up and drops his sword on accident, and, while, and then he kind of gets all deferential, and he sort of kneels down, and then he's got this long robe, and he grabs his beard to hug him, which, uh, if you don't know, is kind of the way some people do it. Right? They touch their beard to their forehead, this kind of strange thing. And then he comes up with the sword and he kills him. Okay? And, and at Gibeon, there is a rock. And the fact that they mention the rock makes the whole thing like a sacrifice. And this is also the location, by the way, in, earlier in the book, where um, the two groups of men, remember? The two sides of Israel sat down and they started to play a little game and they ended up killing everyone. <laughs> and then a civil war broke out. So all of that is supposed to tell us what's going on. Okay, there's a sacrificial offering in order for Joab to take control of the kingdom. He's now in charge of the king's men. He's the one who's now leading the army. And, and what does his assistant say? If you're for Joab and the king, follow Joab. And, and that's not an accident. Joab, right, these men who were clinging to, to the king have been stolen away by jo Joab and his very subtle 
um, coup here that he's done. So at the very end, the list of officials is also very strange. It's very common when a king comes to the throne that they then say he is now the king and these are his officials. It's happened several times. So it would appear that David's reign begins again. But if you look at the verses, you know whose name is not mentioned as ruling? David, right? In fact, several times there where you would expect to find the name David, you actually find the name Joab. Joab has taken the kingdom away. And, and if he doesn't want the throne maybe necessarily for himself, what he wants is to be the one who puts someone on the throne. We know this because 1 Kings chapter 1, that's exactly what he does. He tries to choose who the next king is. So he doesn't necessarily want to be king like Absalom or Ishbosheth. He wants to be the king maker. Okay? He wants to be the chief of staff. He wants to be the one uh, who's, who's, who's the power broker. And, and some men, this is what they would rather be, the power broker than the actual power itself, right? If you, because who wants to be the power when, you, when you're just a pawn in a game that Joab is playing? Okay, now, now could, it, could it get any worse? Could it get any worse? I mean, you've got this general of Israel lying in, in the road and everyone's stopping, as we often do when there's an accident on the side of the road, and they're slowing up the progress. And so what they do is they drag him out into a field and cover him with a blanket and then hustle on their way. And now... Now, the heroine of the story enters the scene. Because at this point, you're thinking, are there any faithful men left? It doesn't appear like it, but there, are, there is a faithful woman. Right? And, and, and this is something that I, I'm going to... We, we put so much emphasis on men leading and men taking the charge and men grabbing the bull by the horns and doing all... Amen all that. But when the men fail, it's godly women, right, who, who have been faithfully standing up and doing the right thing all along who step in and, 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 and know how to, to take care of the household of God because they're devoted to the true father and husband and king of that household. Because my wife, at times, in my own household, has protected our household from stupid things that I have said and done, right? Because she's more devoted to, to the, the Lord than she is to me. And if my wife, right, if you ever have a marriage where you're more devoted to the person you're married to than the Lord, you have serious problems. Things get all out of whack. My loyalty to my wife is derived from my loyalty to God. And if, and if I don't keep that right, I think everyone knows me. I'm, I love, I'm kind of obsessed with my wife a little bit. It is a relationship I have to constantly remind myself about. She's not God. <laughs> She's not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. And I serve her because I serve him. And wives, you serve your husbands because you right? um, submit to them as unto the Lord. There's a reason that the Bible says that. You don't submit to them in a worldly, fallen, manly way. You submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And so here we have the heroine. I'm going to go to 2 Samuel 20, verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in, and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They uh, cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. 
You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Talk about not knowing yourself. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Amen. Go fight when. Now, the unnamed woman, referred to as wise in verse 16 and verse 22, is a type of the true Israel, the faithful bride of Yahweh, the mother of us all. Right? Especially when people do not have a name, that is immediately to clue us in that they are typologically representative of something. So anytime you come to a character that doesn't have a name, that plays a role like this, you think, oh, this is, this is a historical person, but there is more, much, much, much more going on. Now, how do we know that she fears the Lord? It's, it's because she's wise, right? She's referred to as being a wise woman, and we know in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We see in her actions that she is a Proverbs 31 bride. Proverbs 31, verse 27 to 28, she looks well to the ways of her household. She is the one who, who walks up to the, to the wall and shouts down at the soldiers. And, and why? She makes an argument not only about herself, but about the city. She's there for the household of God. She's saying there, is, there are people here who, who pursue the Lord, who know the Lord, who walk with the Lord, and you are trying to destroy them. Now, Joab lays siege to the city Abel. He's greeted by a bold and impassioned plea. Lady Wisdom herself stands aloud in the city, crying out to him, telling him what way to go and what way not to go. It's just like in Proverbs chapter 8 and 9. Lady Wisdom is shouting in the streets, trying to get the fools to listen. Now, a concept that has been missing for many chapters here is the fact that no one has, been, no one has stopped and thought, you know what, you know, let, let's go down to the tabernacle and ask God what he thinks. Now, you remember in 1 Samuel, David wouldn't do boo without going to the Lord first. And what her argument is in Hebrew is that the city Abel was a city people used to go to to seek the will of the Lord. And you know what? They would hear it. This is a city that has not abandoned the Lord. They are not only wise, those who live there, but they are the ones who pursue the will of the Lord. David no longer seeks the Lord's guidance, right? Does Sheba? Did Absalom? No. All of these men who are going about doing their own thing, playing power politics, uh, slaughtering one another, doing all this worldly activity, while all of that is going on, you think, oh, all hope is lost for Israel. But here's this little town, the mother of Israel, typologically, what does that sound like? Jerusalem, our mother. This little town where you can still hear what God wants you to do, where you can go if you want to fear the Lord, where you can go if you want to live peaceably. When all the world is in chaos, there is still a place for people to go where it is not chaos, where there is a husband who is providing for and protecting his household, where there is a mother who's concerned about her household, who's concerned about the fear of the Lord, who's concerned about the will of the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, that place is the church. And this is what Augustine's city of God was about. Why? Because when the, when the Roman city of Rome was destroyed, they came and they burned all the temples to the ground except churches. 
And, and Augustine saw this glorious eschatological vision in the fact that in all of Rome, it's burning to the ground, but the place that everyone goes to be safe is the church. There's always an ark. There's always a remnant. There is always a band of believers who will not give way to thugs and to criminals, and this woman is standing on the walls representing those people. And she is your mother. She is your mother. She says, why do you want to swallow up the Lord's heritage? Now, what is that? What is the Lord's heritage? Is it the land of Israel? Is it borders? No, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He's handing out gifts to Joshua and all of his folks. He's like, hey, you guys take the hills. You guys take the, the rivers. You guys take the plains. My heritage is the people of God. And this woman is standing there looking at Job, whose, whose, whose blood is still all over his sword from the last murder he just committed. And she says, why are you doing this bloodthirsty thing? Why are you trying to swallow up the heritage of the Lord, which is the people of God? And that's why he responds the way he's, he does. I'm not an enemy of Israel. I'm the leader of Israel's army. And what you see there is, is, is a look into the Gospels where Jesus comes, and not all Israel is Israel. But he finds them, doesn't he? He goes from into the mountains. He goes from town to town. And what does he find? He finds those who fear him. He finds those who are faithful to him. He finds those who are waiting for him. Not some idealistic concept that they come up with that looks an awful lot like a Roman emperor. There are people waiting for exactly the man who showed up. And this is called the remnant. That's why the reading for Romans was about today. Because even the great prophet Elijah, <laughs> this story is one of my favorites. Elijah the prophet is like, okay, well, you know, we're disinherited. There's nobody left. It's just me. So he goes up into a cave to cry. And he's there, and he's crying like a little baby. Now, he'd been through some things. Fine, okay, whatever. But he's crying like a little baby. And God shows up, and he's like, why are you crying? He's like, I'm, I'm it. I'm all you got. All you got is me. And God's like, oh, okay, um, hold on. I've got 7,000. 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. So what do you think those 7,000 men and their families have not done? Because it's always right, men are representative of a larger number. Always, because they're fathers and husbands. Have you ever gone up to the cave like Elijah to cry? And you think, oh my gosh, you look, you, you, right? I, my wife and I went on a date at the end of December to Seattle, a place I tried not to go to. And I thought, oh my gosh, when is the sulfur going to fall out of the sky and just swallow this horrid place up? Because I think there couldn't possibly be any Christians in the city. And then Anne was like, well, what about the lilies? I was like, okay, well, there's the lilies. <laughs> Okay? And, and God said he wouldn't destroy it for ten faithful. <laughs> it's true. This is conversation. We always think, well, this, you know, all he's got is me left. And, and what we don't understand is there is always a, a remnant. There is always a city that is a mother. Right? It doesn't matter how things appear. She is there on the wall willing to shout out into the streets for anyone who wants to follow wisdom and to fear the Lord and to follow his ways and to know his will, come in here. And, and Joab says, oh, well, you, you know, there's this snake in there. She goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. And she goes in wisdom and explains to everybody what needs to happen, and then they chuck his head over the wall. 
And I'm like, yeah, sister. <laughs> Preach the gospel. Because that, that's what the bride of Christ is like. If he's a head-stomping savior, what is she like? Right? She, she's a, a helpmate fit for the task of her husband. And so the church, right? This isn't just a place where if the whole world is burning down, we can all come and sit comfortably while the word, world burns us down too. Because that's often what we think, right? Oh, she must be soft and she must be gentle. And she must merely, because she nurtures us the way she does, Mother Kirk, she must just be the place where we can go and die quietly. But no, what you have is, is Mother Kirk standing on the walls saying, okay, what do we, oh, there's a snake in the garden. Unlike Eve, she goes and kills the snake and has his head thrown out of, out of the garden and says, now this peaceable town can go back to doing the things that we really love, which is serving the Lord God. Now, there's a verse in 2 Timothy 3.6 that I think helps us understand what's going on in the household of Israel. In 2 Timothy 3.6, we read, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. This is, this is um, Paul, Paul's talking about the island of Crete. So there are creepers, creepers, like a snake kind of creeps. Anyway who go around stealing weak women out of houses. And why are they weak? Because the men are weak. And, and we're going to get into Titus after we're done with Samuel, and that's what a, a large part of his problem is. The women are weak, and they're stolen from their households. They're, they're distracted from the things that really matter. Because they're weak, they're easily led astray. Okay? And the women are weak because the men are weak. Now, it, this woman who's standing on the wall talking to Joab, does it seem like she is weak? No, because her husband is not David, her husband is not Joab, her husband is not Sheba, her husband is Yahweh. And, and, and because of him and his provision and his protection, she will stand up to thugs, she will stand up to criminals, and she will, and she will say, what are you doing? And will call them to obedience. And in every age that the church exists, this is its responsibility. No, I will not call Caesar Lord. No, I will not call Hitler Lord. No, I will not call Congress Lord. No, I will not call the Supreme Court Lord. I will gather when I will gather, and you have nothing to say to me about that. I will do what I am supposed to do, which is serve the Lord God, seek him in all things, grow in wisdom, find out what his will is, and nurture his children. I care about his heritage. That is Mother Kirk. That is the lady whom we serve. That is the body to which we belong. Now, Proverbs 31. It says that the wise woman dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Verse 17. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. And that's what God's bride is like. Malachi chapter 4, verse 3, this is what the prophet says. He says this to Israel. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And if anyone is tempted at all to think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New, this is what Jesus has to say to the apostles. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Solomon, right? The, book of, the Song of Solomon is many things. It's a manual for happy married life. 
if you want to, like, the Hebrew is translated very poorly generally, but if you want to know how to have an active love life with your spouse, I have a, a copy of that book that explains things very clearly, and I love it. I love to give it to new couples. Okay, now the book of Song of Solomon sometimes is considered to be a, a metaphorical book about Jesus and the bride. And, and I think, why not both? <laughs> and there's, there's all kinds of things there to be said about the book of the Song of Solomon. But this is a verse that I love from it that I think explains how Solomon felt about his actual wife and how Jesus Christ feels about his bride, the church. Chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful as Terzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Now, if our wives and our daughters were awesome as an army with banners, what does that look like in the household of God? What kind of women are we married to? Are, what kind of women are we washing with the word? Are, are we equipping? Are we loving? Sacrific- what, what is it that we're efficaciously leading them to? What kind of daughters are we raising? Are they as awesome as an army with banners? Because I've been saying this for years. We have this concept of the Christian life that is nothing but Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And where he is willingly sub- submitting himself to what they're doing to him and not fighting back. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. But is that the only thing that he's done in all the Gospels? Right? Women, ladies in the church, women generally, Eve, the mother of the living, the bride of Christ. This verse, Solomon says his wife is as beautiful as Jerusalem. This isn't the way we usually talk to our wives. You are as gorgeous as San Francisco. <laughs> right? Like a, like a squadron of A-10s. Right? If I talked to my wife like that, that'd be weird. But, but, I mean, how many of you guys love history and, and movies anyway? And isn't it always awesome in World War II movies where they, where they suddenly pan to the sky and it's filled with B-29s? And I would be like, I would give anything to be standing there watching thousands of B-29s flying over. And, and how many of us ever, ever really understand what an army with banners means? We don't really understand that concept because we're smarter these days than to tactically stand out in a field under flags. But he's saying that his bride looks as beautiful as the city of Jerusalem. He's saying his bride looks as beauty, as beautiful as 3,000 B-29s flying through the sky. It's as beautiful, right, as the blue angels breaking the sound barrier all at once, which is terrifying. Right? Have you ever heard an airplane break the sound barrier? It doesn't even have to shoot at me. If I'm standing on the ground and I hear that sound, I, I'm going to start digging to get away from whatever that beast in the sky is. And, and what the Lord God, right? This, this is the bride of Christ. She is as beautiful as Jerusalem. She is as fierce as an army. And so when we look at our wives and our daughters, do we say to them, you are as beautiful as the city of Jerusalem, this beautiful mother, No, we have a hard time with that because we don't really understand what's being said. And what I want, right, what what does that look like? It looks like a lady lady wisdom standing on the ramparts, shouting down at a murderer and telling him what she thinks about what he's doing. And she's deferential, my Lord, I am but your servant. How dare you raise your hand against the heritage of the Lord? Right? And, and, And she's all, right, she's a quiet spirit, even as she's going about telling thugs what she thinks about what they're doing. Now, this is the culture that we're fighting with. This is the culture that we're fighting with. 
We, we cannot fight a culture war. We can't talk about the church and what it offers the world unless we understand what it's offering the world. And if, if, you, if people ever wonder, you take them to the story and you say, this is what we are offering. The world is full of thugs and sinners, and we, the church, are standing on the walls saying, here you can find the will of the Lord. Here we fear the Lord. Here we care about his heritage more than we care about boundaries and tribal rights. Come here. If you come here, what you will find is peace. What you will find is dignity. What you will find is beauty. What you will find is strength. Because our Lord is the Lord God, the living God. That is to whom you belong. That is the body to which you are a member. That is what we are doing when we are... are, (laughs) What she is doing here is what we are doing when we worship. What she is doing here is what you mothers are doing when you sit down and you teach the the mathematics to your children. This is what we're doing when we take our wives on dates. This is what we're doing when we care for people that nobody else cares for. This is what we are doing when we stand up and we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you go from here today, remember your mother. Honor your mother. Remember what she has taught you. If you don't know what she, right, if that's a little fuzzy, learn from her. Seek to be guided by her. Seek to see her as beautiful and, 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 and like an army under banners and seek to honor her by living like her because that is what you're called to be as the people of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are our faithful husband, that you are even now sanctifying your bride, that you are providing for and caring for us. We know that we are not alone in our circumstances. We know that no matter how small our group is, Lord, that um, we do not stand alone because we stand with you. Lord, you're, you are at work in our culture, you are work in Washington, you are work in the Pacific Northwest in ways that we can hardly understand, just like Elijah. But we know, Lord, that you are faithful, and we know that your people are faithful to you, and there is always a remnant, Lord, and we, we thank you so much for making us members of the remnant. And, and we look to you to provide and to protect and to care for us as you always have. And amen.